Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. It was quite a week in Ottawa, a story that had been smoldering, if I can use the unfortunate tie-in with the very real fires we're going to be reporting on this afternoon. But it did. It started, we had the reporting in the Globe and Mail, the drip, drip. We had Sam Cooper from Global. And now here we are, where this is a story that this week followed the Prime Minister to a coronation in London, asked about it even today followed him to a liberal convention in Ottawa and followed him everywhere he went in Ottawa this week, including some fiery moments and revelations that happened in question period. We're going to unpack this, as we say. David Aiken joining us live, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. David, good afternoon. Hey, Arlene, how you doing? I am good. How are you? What a week to cover this story started, the beginnings of it, the genesis from the the leaker, who we still don't know who that is in CSIS. And then now we have Michael Chong, conservative MP, targeted his family. He wasn't told and a promise from the prime minister that that's going to be changed. Explosive week, David. It was, and it's uh, it can be a little bit of a complicated story. Uh, Michael Chong was on uh, the West Block uh, this afternoon with uh, our substitute host, Eric Sorensen. He talked about it, and you're right, the Prime Minister himself, who started the day in London, in England. He was over there this weekend for the coronation. He got asked about this. Trudeau's on his way home. He'll land a little later on in uh, Ottawa this afternoon. But uh, this all starts two years ago, in 2021. Uh, when our spy agency, CSIS, uh, apparently uncovered some kind of plot in which Michael Chong, the conservative MP from for Wellington Halton Hills, that's Georgetown, Fergus, just uh, just uh, west of Toronto. Uh, apparently, CSIS found a, a plot in which the uh, Beijing regime was going to somehow intimidate or harass uh, Michael Chong and his family, and specifically some relatives that Chong has. Uh, in Hong Kong, Chong uh, is as a uh, descends from Dutch and Chinese parents, and he's got uh, uh, parents in Hong Kong, or he's got relatives in Hong Kong. That was what CSIS discovered in 2021, and CSIS put together a memo. And what we learned this week, well, we learned about the contents of that mm-hmm. memo this week when that memo was leaked to some of our friends at the Globe and Mail, and then what we learned later in the week was. CSIS did, in fact, uh, do what it's supposed to do. It told the relevant security agencies, including the National Security and Intelligence Advisor to the Prime Minister in 2021. Now, here's where it gets a little complicated. Uh, We're not exactly sure who the NSIA, the National Security and Intelligence Advisor, was in 2021 to the PM because he had three uh, in that Mm -hmm. year. One was Vince, a fellow named Vincent Rigby. Uh, there was uh, an interim uh, uh, NSIA and another one, David Morrison. Our reporting, we have contacted or tried to contact all three of those individuals. Rigby, when contacted, says, I didn't get that memo about this alleged plot involving mm-hmm. Chong. And neither did the interim uh, uh, NSIA, which leaves us with David Morrison. He hasn't responded to our inquiries yet. 
And where is David Morrison these days? He's the deputy minister at the Department of Foreign Affairs. He's very much in the mix. In any event, the reason why we want to find that out is because the prime minister this week and today said, no one told me two years ago Mm -hmm. that Michael Chong, an MP, was targeted. And in fact, on Wednesday, Trudeau tried to throw CSIS under the bus, saying CSIS should have told somebody. Well, And they did. Then the reporting was they did. Yeah, they did. Well, it wasn't the reporting. It was actually the current NSIA, Mm -hmm. the current National Security Advisor. Her name is Jody Thomas. She phoned up Michael Chong on Thursday, Mm -hmm. about an hour before question period, and said, Michael, I've got some things to tell you. One of the things is that CSIS did tell my predecessor back in 2021. This is the day after the prime minister has said CSIS didn't tell anybody. Trudeau's own national security advisor phones up Michael Chung and says, actually, sorry, CSIS did tell uh, the national security advisor and people they should have told, but the information never got to the PM. Long and David, I just want to ask you, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, finish, and then uh, there are questions. Well, long we story short is the PM says he's changed that. If CSIS or anybody mm-hmm. ever gets information about an MP being targeted, he wants to know about it. So that is the processy part of it where we get to plot. Did CSIS know? Yes. CSIS told mm-hmm. the National Security Advisor? Yes. Did that National Security Advisor do anything about it? Apparently not. Trudeau says, I didn't, nobody told me. And he didn't learn about it until he read about it in the Global Mail this week, like the rest of us. It is. You know, that, that contradicting information mattered. It didn't look good. And when Jody Thomas, and we learned that she, as you just have laid out, called Michael Chong, he didn't really walk it back, did he, David? How did the prime minister handle that new information? It wasn't, it wasn't yeah. clear. It wasn't clear <laughs> we, in the we, beginning. It wasn't clear he got the message, really. Right. So, so Trudeau then, on Friday... Trudeau was at the, the, the Liberals had their big convention in Ottawa. Before Trudeau went to the coronation, he was at the big party event. Mm-hmm. We asked him about this, and he said, I, I passed on the best information I had at the time. That doesn't really, that doesn't really, yeah. that's an indictment, if you ask me, on our security services. I mean, sure, I guess uh, Michael Chong will say, and he did today on the West Block, say, actually, that's an indictment of the prime minister. You've been in office eight, eight years now. You ought to have your sort of information sharing systems down pat. Okay, fair enough. I'll give Michael his. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a reasonable opinion. But on the other hand, what kind of confusion was going on, uh, you know, two years ago when something ought to be done about this? Now, the bigger issue, Arlene, at this point is okay. We sorted out what, when does the PM know or whatever. The bigger issue now is what CSIS said two years ago was there was a diplomat from Beijing here in Canada that was involved in this plot to intimidate, harass. Uh, a member, uh, an MP's family, or the MP himself. That diplomat is still in this country. Why is that diplomat still in this country? Why has that diplomat not been expelled? That is something the Conservatives were hammering away all week, and that is something the Prime Minister got asked about today. I'll have more on this tonight on Global National if you want to watch it. Uh, but basically what the PM said today, well, we're we're carefully considering whether we want to expel this mm-hmm. diplomat because the PM is worried about retaliation by Beijing 
that will hurt our economy. And he specifically singled out and, and, yeah. pork and canola. And what do we do next? And the the other person that was apparently part of this report and this diplomat is still in the country. And there's a, a, a conversation, and you just gave us a quote from the prime minister on kind of a, I don't know, what do you call it? Namby pamby quote. Didn't really say anything. They're looking into it. You know, David, I'm sure you did as well. Talking to so many former and current national security analysts and people who worked in the government, and many are really saying this point is really important right now, that it must be high risk for our adversaries, China, Russia, perhaps Iran. Everyone's getting a message from this. This is one of the things that Michael Chong makes. Again, he's uh, he's on the West Block earlier today. That's our uh, our political, our, our Sunday political show, and you can watch the course online. And one of the things that Michael Chong says is um, he, he is a little bit upset that the prime minister today and the foreign affairs minister earlier in the week, Melanie Jolie, uh, were saying they're worried about expelling a Chinese diplomat for fear that the Chinese may retaliate with some economic measures. And what he says is, why would you telegraph that? Why would you say to yeah. Beijing that mm-hmm. we're vulnerable mm-hmm. to some sort of leverage um, by the regime there. He doesn't think that's appropriate. And he says that is a result of the fact that we have not expelled uh, a diplomat, I think, since 2008. Another one of our colleagues, Stuart Bell, he's got a piece online right now, globalnews.ca, that talks about the sort of the history of that, um, ex- expelling diplomats. It's a very serious thing. I'm sure you know, Arlene, it's a very sing- serious thing. You're sending a very strong message when you kick a diplomat out of the country. But the point is that Chong is making is that you know, we haven't kicked out any of the Russian diplomats that are spreading disinformation, misinformation uh, about the uh, war in Ukraine and, and Russia's role there. We haven't kicked out any Chinese diplomats. Um, and and as a result, uh, in Chong's view, these countries feel free to try to intimidate uh, uh, Canadian citizens of diaspora communities here on Canadian soil. And so I think the, the Conservatives, certainly, if as you look to the week ahead, there's going to be a vote in the House of Commons on this whole issue of the Chinese diplomat tomorrow. Um, as we look to the week ahead, I think certainly the, the Conservatives and to a degree the New Democrats and the Bloc Québécois are looking for some action and less sort of stroking your chin and thinking about things, which is what the, what the prime minister said the government is doing right now. It is. So it's kind of opened up something that's been smoldering there for some time, hasn't it, David? Are we doing enough? You know, misinformation, disinformation. We've watched all these efforts around the world, specifically in the United States, kind of focusing on Russia and talking points and where they're putting it. In fact, we've we've watched that there are there's a amplification of certain people here in Canada who put out those even pro-Putin or anti-Ukraine war statements. So this has kind of brought to the surface something that has been there for a while, a wake-up call, perhaps. Well, it, 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 you're right. It has been there for a while. I mean, really, it, it, it really was mostly uh, when we're talking about uh, diplomats in another country be- behaving badly on our soil. It's mostly been about Russian diplomats for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, yes, uh, certainly Chinese diplomats. And there was something that uh, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, sort of encouraged his uh, foreign diplomatic corps to do, starting about a couple of years ago, is called warrior diplomacy, wolf warrior dis- diplomacy. Be a wolf warrior out there, all you Chinese diplomats, in which it was the mission of diplomats to be aggressive, to get in the face of 
whatever uh, country China believes is uh, at odds with it. That could be that could be Canada, that could be the United States, could be the UK. And uh, and here in Canada, the the Chinese ambassador to Canada, his name is Kong Pei Wu. He's here in Ottawa. Um, you know, he, he pushes back as hard as anybody when somebody pushes at China. So last week, the Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie summoned Ambassador Kong again. He's the, the ambassador from China to say we're not going to tolerate this this thing that you guys did with Chong. And Kong just pushed back, saying we don't do any sort of that thing, and why don't you go jump in a lake? And so people are saying, like, we're not going to have it. When I say people, conservatives are saying Mm -hmm. that uh, we ought to toss diplomats like this uh, and let them know who's boss. If you're going to be accredited to serve in our SAR, you're going to do so in a certain kind of way, the way Canadian diplomats behave, we assume, uh, in their countries. You know, you've been referencing the Liberal Convention. It came up. You had a former Prime Minister, Jean Chrétien, uh, trying to throw, I guess, everybody off the political scent there, saying maybe the Globe is going to want some kind of an investigation because we have invited Hillary Clinton here. It's election interference. Trying to make light of it, David, how did it go over and what does that say? We all wonder if anything an accident when it's said certainly by a former prime minister at a convention? Well, I think the bigger issue at the convention, and I spent three days sort of hanging around the floor of this thing, and I do this for, you know, conservative conventions, New Democrat conventions, you name it. It's, it's, uh, it's actually can be kind of socially uh, enjoyable sort of gossiping <laughs> about politics for three days. But what struck me at the liberal convention is I really didn't find anybody there who thought that this, this Chong matter this whole issue of did the prime minister get informed? He did not. And are we mm-hmm. kicking that diplomat out? They don't seem to think it's a political liability for the governing party, for the Trudeau liberals. And who knows? It may not. I mean, I've talked to others. I've talked to conservatives and Democrats who say, um, you know, uh, this is a prime minister that, that went through an election campaign with the blackface scandal over him, yeah. uh, went through another election with the SNC-Lavalin matter over him, where Jody Wilson-Raybould quit and accused the PM of interfering in a court case. Didn't seem to touch him. He won minority governments. But if he can survive those kind of things, I think a lot of liberals say, well, this is small potatoes. That was the feeling at the among liberals at their convention. Again, the opposition parties do not feel this way. They think this is a very serious matter, and they will certainly be pursuing it uh, next week uh, in the House of Commons. They are, and they're calling for Jody Thomas to come to committee, aren't they? Yeah, well, they want to get the, not just Jody Thomas, all, like the, the whole roster of, of national security mm-hmm. advisors. It's been pretty typical in my experience over the last, uh, you know, 20 years, 20 or so years I've been here through Prime Minister Harper and Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, you know, the, the national security advisor position rotates in and out, I would say, every 18 months to two years. It's a very senior position. Uh, Jody Thomas's background, she used to be the deputy minister of the Department of National Defense. Uh, she's also run the Coast Guard. Uh, she's a very button-down uh, uh, sort of administrator, security official. Uh, I think widely seen as pretty competent official. Um, and I, I'm certain that parliamentarians want to hear, um, you know, what did she do when she heard when she read this in the Globe and Mail? Um, but I think also you're going to see parliamentarians are also going to want to speak to Jody Thomas's predecessors. Remember, I mentioned the three in a row they had in 2021 mm-hmm. as a transition from Vincent Rigby to David Morrison. And um, and they'll want to speak to those individuals to go, you know, what happened? I mean, here's the sad thing. You know, I mean, usually, you know, Arlene, in any situation, the most uh, likely uh, explanation is probably the correct one. And in this case, it, what seems to have happened is 
literally a memo fell through the cracks between three different national security advisors. It's the government. <laughs> but yeah. again, this is, this, is a, this is a really important matter of national security, and that shouldn't happen. And so that's why there is going to be some talk about process. How did the ball get dropped here? Again, so far, and Michael John today is saying, as far as he's aware, the prime minister did not know two years ago. Yeah, yeah. But he says that the, the, the prime minister is still responsible for a system that failed to inform him. And that's where the yeah, buck so, stops with the yeah. PM. We do know there are those who were evacuated and they're nervous. There are those who maybe are getting a high sign that they can go back home. And then there are those who think that they may be evacuated. I'm just looking on social media during the breaks here, some incredible pictures from some who thought they they were going to have to go away, like right out their window, they can see the flames, but they're okay and they're still home. Others like ranchers are worried, what do they do if it if it becomes a more dire situation? What are the plans and what are the help to get their animals out of the way. Joining us is Neethu Garcha, who's an anchor and a reporter with Global News in Vancouver, but right now in high-level Alberta. Neethu, good afternoon. Hi, Arlene. All right, Neethu, where are you? What are you seeing and what's going on? Yeah, so we just drove uh, further away from the high-level airport. High-level is a town about 800 kilometers north of Edmonton. That airport is where uh, it's the base for a lot of the um, crew who are trying to tackle the cluster of fires near Fox Lake, near Rainbow Lake. Both communities that have been evacuated uh, are staying. That's their base. Um, In terms of what I'm seeing around me, uh, one of the most noticeable aspects of the weather here is the wind. It has been consistent. It has been strong. It is coming from all different directions at various times of the day and Alberta wildfire has maintained since we got here uh, late Thursday and into Friday morning that the wind remains one of the biggest challenges here. Uh, This town has a population of about 3,600 people. Uh, They say they're lucky that they have quite a few hotels, which helps in situations like this. They're definitely not new to hosting uh, evacuees in uh, wildfire situations, but they say that this year's evacuations, and it's only early May, already makes up one of the biggest mass evacuations to high level they have ever seen. So they have a sports complex. The arena is full of hundreds of evacuees from the Indigenous community of Fox Lake. And just late yesterday, Rainbow Lake, which is about an hour away from here, was also evacuated. And they say that they have upwards of 500 people from there. So the curling rink has now um, been turned into an evacuation center. They had a large donation of cots from the Red Cross delivered. And they are just doing what they can to try and and, uh, put a roof over the heads of these evacuees whose futures uh, are, remain in question. And we heard late yesterday that the Alberta provincial government has declared a state of emergency because it's not just this region in northern Alberta, as you mentioned mm-hmm. off the top, Arlene, that's mm-hmm. dealing with this. Evacuation orders have been flowing in pretty consistently since Thursday from central Alberta as well, west of Edmonton. Uh, the situation is becoming dire. A number of communities there are experiencing the same. Uh, Parkland County, Yellowhead County, Drayton Valley, Hinton is hosting a number of uh, evacuees as well, similar to what's happening here in high level. So um, it's the sentiment I'm hearing from a number of the evacuees we've spoken to here in high level is that they just can't believe it. 
it seems surreal. They never would have thought that, especially this early into the mm-hmm. season and the weather becoming warmer, that they would see this number of not only evacuations, but threats to communities. In Fox Lake, they say that the latest number of homes lost is upwards of 40. Uh, their local police station has been burned down. The only, the main general store, I should say, in the community and the water treatment plant um, has has been affected as well. So, and you think of, uh, for that community, um, just not only thinking of when they might be able to go home, but what they might return to is a cause of Yeah, there's such a human story here. You're seeing it, Anitha. You're seeing it up close. And I said at the beginning, you know, you read the headlines, and then you know there are people in the home. This is everything to people. Yeah. And they're worried and frightened. And I'm, I'm, I find it interesting the way you say that people are blindsided. And these are people that know when wildfire seasons start. But this is early and surprising. Is there an ominous feeling there? I think so, yeah. I think where the surprise element comes in for a number of people is specifically for Fox Lake. It is a community that is only accessible by bars. Mm -hmm. A number of the more than 3,600 residents had never left Fox Lake before. Uh, They have had their ancestors living there for generations upon generations, and they're so deeply connected to that community. Uh, So for them to have to evacuate, it's unlike anything they've ever had to deal with or contend with uh, in the past personally. And then uh, more broadly, just uh, hearing from the evacuees um, across the region, I think it's the fact that this number of tens of thousands of people, more than 24,000 across these, these parts of Alberta are, are out of their homes right now and unsure what they'll return to in their communities in early May. I think it's the sheer number of people who've been forced to flee this early in the season that's really shocking people. And there you have, you know, the, the stories of people have never left their community and now they're being forced out by it. And are, we're also hearing that those people who are leaving too, some are getting into the reality of the help they they hope would be there. Are you hearing frustration mm-hmm. about this? Because we're going through, you know, what should be there, what maybe isn't there, and certain segments, including ranchers and, as you say, those who live in a little bit distinct areas, they're they're nervous. Are you seeing things working here right now? Yeah, I have heard that sentiment, especially from officials who work with the town of high level, including the mayor. Uh, She says that they have been calling for a dedicated evacuation center, like a multi-purpose facility that would have resources like COTS available Mm -hmm. because she says since 2003, they've seen 12 mass evacuations to high level. So it's almost something that they expect to have happen. But again, this one is one of the biggest they've ever seen. And they just don't, they're running out of room and and they're having to bring in resources from wherever and strangers stepping up to support and bringing in donations. So um, I think that the message, especially with all of this unfolding during a provincial election um, from them is that they hope that there are years of appeals for a dedicated evacuation center will be heard and acted on. And then when it comes to Little Red River Cree Nation, which the community of Fox Lake mm-hmm. that we've been discussing is a, is a part of, they have been asking for provincial highway upgrades and better paved roads. So it's accessible only by barge, but once you get off that barge, it's um, not a fully paved road. It's, it's a dirt road and a lot of dust gets kicked up, especially when you have hundreds of vehicles trying to 
flee from a wildfire. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were saying that, you know, if they had those provincial highway upgrades in place, they could have gotten people out faster and safer. So I think there is this sentiment that this is, as Danielle Smith had said, an unprecedented situation for Alberta, prompting a provincial state of emergency happening during a provincial election that people are hoping this might lead to some of those changes um, finally oh, You got it. The pressure for those issues are going to be there. You said the wind was high. We're also looking ahead in the forecast, and from what I can see, the warm weather is going to be there. Before we go to break here, uh, is there is Mother Nature cooperating or agitating, in yeah. your opinion, right now? What I've heard from officials and those who are tracking the weather in order to respond appropriately is that the weather has provided no reprieve and there is nothing but sunshine uh, in the forecast. Um, With that and the winds, it has posed one of the biggest challenges in the firefight, according to these officials. Are there people who are evacuated who are getting to go home or people getting any good news that you know? Uh, Not as of right now. Unfortunately for the evacuees who had to flee the community of Fox Lake, it appears it could be weeks before they can return back home. I say that because the chief of Little Red River Cree Nation mentioned uh, the needs for repairs to key infrastructure in the community, including a water treatment plant. um, And again, resources like the police station, um, the main general store in that community. uh, We're hearing upwards of 40 homes um, have been consumed by the flame. So it's uh, even if the fire gets contained, which as of right now, it's showing what what Alberta wildfire calls extreme fire behavior and is out of control. Um, even if the community is protected from that, there is still a lot of infrastructure to be replaced and repaired before people can safely um, return. So it could be some time. The one piece of um, good news I think they have received is mm-hmm. that even though the evacuations had been supported by private boats and aircraft, they had reported a few people were still missing and the chief had spent much of the day, um, despite the risk on Friday, inside the community trying to find those last few people and get them out safe. And uh, we did hear confirmation yesterday that those last few people who had been reported missing are accounted for and they're safe and no injuries uh, have been reported. Um, yeah, so our lead, I'm actually uh, reporting for Global National News today, and we'll have the latest um, on our broadcast there as well. And I'm on a tight deadline, so I do have to run. All right. All right. I look forward to Thank hearing you. more of uh, your coverage as well. The coronation in the aftermath. Now we can do the postmortem, as we say. We don't mean that in the negative way, but in what happened, all the expectations. Did it change things? There was a big challenge there. The royal family looking at this coronation in a way that they had never experienced, not just with criticism. There was a different feeling. They'd had a defection from the family. There was a tension between two brothers, part of the whole royal experience. And now they weren't speaking. And then they had the absence of Diana and the new reality and the, and the fact that King Charles had to reach out and show diversity and things that the royal family has not had this kind of pressure. We're going to talk about what worked and what didn't and what's been left behind. Dr. Barbara J. Messamore is a history professor at the University of the Fraser Valley. Welcome, Dr. Messamore. Thank you for being here. Uh, yeah. Hi, Erlene. Good to be with you. 
Right, it was. There was a lot of expectations here in a different kind of a way. There was no dazzling dress, but there was a lot of other things. Did it work for you? What are your impressions on the day after? Yeah, I think the event would have to be described as a success. I think that, you know, you're very right in what you say. There was a a degree of apprehension about a lot of things. I think, um, you know, my takeaway from it would be that the overall message was one of continuity, kind of a reassuring message. I think about um, the remarks um, the king made um, after Queen Elizabeth's death, and I think then, too, we kind of heard that message of reassurance, I think. You know, people had known Charles throughout his life and maybe had some um, apprehensions about, you know, what Mm -hmm. new brand he would put on his role as sovereign. Uh, But I think that, you know, granted there were elements in the coronation ceremony that were different, but I think by and large, um, you know, if you sat through the three hours you can get on YouTube of Queen Elizabeth's Mm -hmm. coronation, you'd see many common elements. Um, I think the one thing that definitely was modernized is that there was a much reduced role for peers. Uh, that was something that features very prominently in uh, Elizabeth's mm-hmm. coronation. Um, but I think, you know, in light of the things that you just mentioned, that there were some controversies and, and within the royal family, I think those were really deftly handled. I think um, one of the things I noticed, for example, is that... Um, Traditionally, all members of the royal family would would pay homage to the to the king. In this case, we just had William, the the heir to the throne, doing that, and that avoids, of course, any of the awkwardness of, of putting the spotlight on Andrew or Harry mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that. So, so that was certainly deftly handled. Um, one of the other things I might remark on is that um, there was a distinction in that Charles's oath. Um, didn't mention the Commonwealth realms individually. Um, you know, in, in Elizabeth's oath, uh, each, um, or not not every realm, but uh, but uh, some of the realms, including Canada, of course, were mentioned individually. And somebody remarked that um, that might be sort of to avoid drawing attention to the fact that there were fewer of, of them. Uh, if we yes. mention, for example, Jamaica as a Commonwealth mm-hmm. realm, that would attract attention to the fact that they're uh, seriously contemplating a, a, um, in the immediate future. Leaving. A <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yes, and it was. There was a lot of stuff, and it was there and it was handled. But as you say, mm-hmm. it takes a deft hand to pull that off. Mm-hmm. The one thing I'm going to ask you before we go to break, and I know you're going to stick with us because there's lots to go through here, is, mm-hmm. you know, I've talked a lot about the history of it and remembering, mm-hmm. you know, studying at university, the importance of us, of, of the pageantry and our history from villages and towns and all of it. And this is huge. And this is one of the reasons why people watch it. We're kind of hardwired for this. Uh (laughs) That's part of history, isn't it? I mean, this is uh, certainly your studies. It was, uh, there's something about that coronation and the deep history of it that reminds us we do have a past. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a a good point to make. And I think, you know, that's a point when I make that I make when somebody, for example, is asking me about Charles's recent 10 percent dip in popularity in the polls. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that um, those things, you know, of course, they're important to to note and whatnot. But 
the the institution stretches back a thousand years and and elements of the coronation likewise you know so so yeah i feel like um it's significant i think that in important moments that we lean on tradition we go back you know we don't have to invent things afresh each time and i think you know in our own families we do that with weddings and funerals and things like that yes. we, we put our own stamp on them but um but in important moments we we kind of signal that importance with ritual and of course you know the British do pageantry in such a wonderful way, right? Let me ask you, I spoke about the dress and the garments and mm. the importance mm. of that. And they had been changed a little bit too, but some of them were from a very distant path. I mean, it, mm. it really was just a, a huge example of history and outfits and why they matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there were, of course, some things that were updated. I mean, I know, you know if you think back, obviously, the, the Queen's coronation can't be compared because the garments are going to be different for a for a queen. But um, you know, if we look back to George the Sixth, I mean, I, I suppose we wouldn't ex- expect um, Charles to be wearing knee breeches. It'd be pretty easy to look ridiculous in that <laughs> uh, garb. But <laughs> but some elements, as you say, are very ancient indeed. Like you know the. Um, Calabrian uh, Sindonis, the, the linen tunic, the uh, super tunica, that golden coat that he wore, the, the coronation girdle, all these elements. And of course, it's important to remember that the coronation is a religious ritual, right? And so, you know, in religious observances, similarly, we see these kind of vestments, and, and those are significant. You know, the anointing with holy oil, an important part of the coronation. Um, so those things are, are, you know, not accidental. There's kind of a reason for that. Um, I suppose it's also important to note that, uh, you know, as a, as a religious ritual, mm-hmm. it's a Church of England ritual, uh, or at least it has been for the last 500 of those thousand years, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> give or take. Um, mm-hmm. But um, but there were other faith elements that were incorporated. And, um, you know, I'm sure uh, viewers who watch the coronation noticed that. We had, for example, a uh, a Roman Catholic cardinal giving a uh, a blessing for the first time in more than 400 years. Uh, we had British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, a practicing Hindu, reading, uh, doing a Bible reading. We had a, a Greek Orthodox choir. We had a Sikh representative, Lord Inderjeet uh, Inder, Singh, uh, presenting the coronation glove. Um, and and uh, even the Pope's gift of what was purported to be a piece of the true cross being uh, inlaid into the cross of Wales during the profession, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, they, they kind of, again, had to strike a balance there. It is a, an Anglican ceremony, and yet there were these interfaith elements incorporated. And so... Yeah, great diversity. Are, yeah, the, the word yeah. got mm-hmm. got a lot of meaning there. You know, how do you mm-hmm. think it, it's being felt in Canada. We know now we're going to have King Charles on the money that was announced mm-hmm. yesterday. Also, we have a new yeah. we have a new flag where his uh, crown is going to be featured on it. It was a reminder, yep. and not all people like it. I'm not telling anybody sure. anything they don't know. We're divided here in Canada, aren't we? Certainly Do you are. think it yes. did it add to it in your opinion? Add to the division, you mean, or or, or um, maybe brought us together? A reminder: I Does think, it did yeah. it help or hurt? Well, I think one one thing that I thought was a um, a really important moment was um, 
The remarks of um, Chief Perry Bellegarde, the former chief of the mm-hmm. Assembly of First Nations, and he spoke in very positive terms about the king and about um, the fact that the king is um, their treaty partner, right, and and uh, Indigenous Nations treaty partner. And so I think that's something that tends to get downplayed a bit. I mean, we think of the monarchy as it is, as a colonial institution, but of course, all our treaties with First Nations are in the name of the crown. And, you know, those aren't merely transactions, right? That's about a relationship. And Bellegarde is somebody who's uh, had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with um, with the king, and um, they have a relationship. And that matters to, to not all, but, but many um, Indigenous nations. So, so I think that's significant. I mean, even the fact that the the uh, 18th century royal proclamation, the thing that we that recognizes what we now call Aboriginal title, you know, that wasn't legislation by an elected body. That was a proclamation by the by the sovereign, right? So, I think that's a really important Canadian element that we don't want to lose sight of. Um, I get, like in Canada, of course, there's. Um, uh, you have to be politically responsive, as you say. We're we're divided on this question, and and you know nobody could could say that Justin Trudeau's government's gone all out in the <laughs> celebration of the coronation, no. and a lot of aspects of the local celebrations have been pretty subdued. I understand there's there's uh, further things planned, but you know those decisions are always made in a climate of of economic retrenchment and and. Uh, thinking about you know, gauging the popular mood, eh? It is. How much do you think the personalities ma- mattered? Diana hit with a bang and increased the, like Tiger Woods increased the interest in golf. <laughs> Princess Diana increased the interest in the coronation. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah, they, the personalities matter a great deal. And I think even the most diehard Republicans probably would have said, oh, well, you know, while the Queen lives, we won't push the issue. But the moment the succession happens, then uh, then it's a whole different question. And, and yes, I think that, you know, it's undeniable that, that um, Charles has um, not got the, the immense personal popularity of, of Queen Elizabeth. I mean, those are, are big shoes to fill, right? And and um, I think that um, he's he's performed his, his uh, role admirably so far. It's early days, but he's, he's spent a lifetime preparing for it. And, uh, and of course, there's all the, the baggage of, of Queen Camilla as well, right? And so, yeah, yeah the, that can't um, uh, be overlooked as a factor. They, the personalities no. always matter. And I guess what they I do. would say is that is that it um, the institution is bigger than any individual, right? And and so over over history, there have been times when we've had deeply unpopular sovereigns, and and uh, somehow it survived. And even those that are broadly popular have had their moments of of being unpopular. <laughs> Queen Victoria herself, you know, who everybody thought was, was, uh, you know, wonderful in her um, decades of service, you know, after entering a protracted mourning after the death of Prince Albert, mm-hmm. there were times when um, people were uh, really quite critical of her. 
Yeah, and, and even even Queen Elizabeth after the death of Diana, having to reverse yes, it and give her a, absolutely so. a yeah. different kind of a funeral, and that pressure on her. And we we watched mm-hmm. her change, yeah. and she was not comfortable with it, and dug in her heels. And how can these wives ruin things? And mm-hmm. how much do you think? I mean, does the Harry and Meghan does it add or distract? Because there we have. I mean, for me. I, I was watching when I watched. I think I was like everyone else. Is he sad? I, I was terribly interested on how he felt. And I wasn't yeah. so sure that I could read it. Maybe you could. Yeah, no, I, I, I certainly have no particular insight into that. But I, you know, I I, mm. I think the the way that the palace has handled it, I think, has been right. That they've kind of uh, maintained a... a dignified silence about a lot of things not responding to particular allegations. And and that I should say, even, you know, when you think of some of the um, complaints that the, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex had, you know, about Megan not being protected and this sort of thing. I mean, that's kind of, that kind of goes with the territory that you don't weigh in to wage a, uh, wage a war with the press, even if they've got it wrong. You know, you just kind of keep the dignified silence and things tend to sift themselves out over time. But um but yeah, I mean it's 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 sad and yet I think the message overall is one of um acceptance of Harry as a family member and um and he was he was there, he was present. I think it was uh probably for the best that the Duchess didn't accompany him as a distraction, you know, and uh mm-hmm. um but uh but yeah I think that the palace kind of made the the best of a very difficult situation in that by, by keeping the door open to um, to their involvement in this in this way, the presence at the coronation. But of course, we didn't have the personal homage, which you you know might have uh, produced some awkwardness, <laughs> right? No political party likes to walk things back that they've proposed. And boy, the gun control legislation, it's been revised, amended, whatever kind of a word you want to use. But there was a lot of anger out there. Even just days ago, the prime minister facing questions about rifles and what they were trying to do. What does it look like and what it's left behind and what is left behind politically as well? We are joined by Wendy Cookier, who's a co-founder, the Coalition for Gun Control. Wendy, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, Wendy, it is changed. It doesn't look like the way it came out. What do you make of where the Liberals gun control legislation is right now? I think it's great. I mean, the the leg- we were very supportive of the first iteration of the legislation, and they introduced some amendments to try to get a definition of uh, military-style semi-automatic firearms into the law, and they added a list of firearms that had not been included in the prohibited list from 2020. Um, they tried to put it in the legislation, which is not historically the way we've done these things in Canada. Historically, mm-hmm. um, when a gun is prohibited, it's prohibited through an ordering council, a specific um, regulation. And so I think what happened was uh, it was viewed as or- overreaching and the opposition parties um, protested. And, you know, we would expect the Conservatives to... Uh, 
uh, fight stronger gun laws. But in this instance, the NDP and the bloc also had concerns. And so they withdrew that list and they tweaked some of the language. But from our perspective, it's a massive step forward. And we'll, we'll be watching committee to make sure that there are no, um, there's no evidence of it being eroded, but we expect the Liberals to come forward with a list of additional prohibited firearms over the next few months. So, um, from our perspective, the the key thing is getting it through the legislature and then the Senate. Are you keen, Wendy, on what works and what doesn't work, too? Because that was part of it, and you so rightly laid out some of the other parties. It wasn't just conservative versus liberal. This is not just right versus left. We had members of the Indigenous community up in arms, may I say, over this. Is there a nuance here that they've reached, or did they overreach before, in your opinion? Well, I think, you know, and... and, uh, I testified before committee, and I was very clear that um, there is no right to bear arms in Canada, period. That's been made clear by the Supreme Court. The government has the right to prohibit any firearm not reasonably used for hunting, and they can do that. I think where um, there are rights, is when we look at Indigenous peoples. Indigenous peoples do have a right to hunt. And I think the concern was that list, right, that was included in the legislation uh, included some firearms that even if they, um, even if they uh, have the characteristics of a military style semi-automatic firearm, the fact is, because of loopholes in the Canadian law, they've been sold as hunting rifles. So you have a lot of people who have them, um, including Indigenous people, and that simply has to be addressed. But um, I think that the uh, the approach that uh, they're taking makes perfectly good sense. And I think they themselves acknowledge that um, more consultation was required, and that's what they're doing. You know, the country is divided over this, and it is about what works. Often, well, daily, even in the last few days, we look to America, and we see how many guns there are. America is so heavily armed, there's more guns than there are people, and I'm sure you know that. Wendy, though, there was criticism over this on the handgun part of it, because it was, there's always been a sense, and I tell this story, when I first started as a reporter, in Toronto covering the city and city hall, there was the same same fear over guns and what they were doing and gangs and things that had just started here in Canada. And it was American guns. And how do you keep them out? So do you ban them here in Canada? How does that really affect the guns that are being used? Have we learned more now, Wendy? Well, again, um, what is included in this legislation is ban on the import, the sale, and the transfer. We've gone from about 300,000 handguns in the early uh, 2000s to over a million. And, and handguns are supposed to be restricted, which means they're only supposed to be acquired under very, very um, controlled circumstances. Clearly, that's not the case, and that's why we have you know, people in rural communities shooting people with with handguns. So um, 
It's absolutely true. What you say is absolutely true. If you're looking at gang violence in big cities, it's primarily guns that are smuggled into Canada. But look at the Danforth shooting. That wasn't a smuggled gun. That was a stolen um, handgun. Look at the Dawson College shooting. That wasn't a smuggled gun. That was a gun um, that was a target shooter. If you look at, um, there was a case a few years ago from one of the groups that involving one of the groups that is most voraciously opposed to the handgun ban, where one of their members had a break in, 40 handguns were stolen from his condo in downtown Toronto, and police took into um, their custody for safekeeping another 100 guns. So that was one target shooter with 140 handguns. I mean, that's as big a haul as we see with some of these um, cross-border trafficking efforts. So make no mistake about it, legally owned handguns are part of the problem. And at the end of the day, Canadians just said enough is enough. Like since uh, 1993, 70% of Canadians wanted to ban on handguns. A lot of gun owners who are hunters don't see the point of handguns. There are only about 200,000 Canadians who currently own handguns and semi-automatic military-style firearms. And those are not guns that are needed for hunting. Those are not guns that are part of, you know, Canadian traditions. And those are guns where the risk outweighs the utility. So I'm all for ensuring that uh, we respect Indigenous rights. I'm all for allowing hunters and people in rural communities who need guns for pest control to have access to firearms as long as they're regulated. But when it comes to target shooting and collecting, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but I think people should get new hobbies. There you are. You've said it. And I'm sure there's people... I don't know if they're target shooting at the radio right now, Wendy, but there's people who feel very, very strongly about this. How much is what happens in America? How does it affect here? I think the problem with what happens in America is it lulls us into a sense of complacency. Look how bad the U.S. is. We're so good. I think we need to be setting our sights higher. I mean, last year in the U.K. had under 30, 30 gun murders. They have twice as many people as we do. They had 30 gun murders. And the rates of beating, stabbing, strangling, etc., are identical between the two countries. So limiting access to firearms makes a big difference in terms of public safety. Is that a valid criticism that, that there was a kind of an igniting of this debate unnecessarily from the prime minister? You know, it's always hard, like, like from my point of view, um, what was in the legislation was consistent with what Canadians want. I think it's true that perhaps the way in which it was communicated was not as effective as it could have been, and it opened space for the gun lobby, and for, it, we can show you the evidence of that, um, riling up ordinary people and saying they're coming for your hunting rifles. And that was clearly not the intent. And certainly was also not the intent to go after uh, Mm -hmm. Indigenous people's hunting rights. But I think the lack of clarity and just the complexity, like this stuff is so complex. You have legislation, you have regulations, you have 
orders in council. You have layers on layers on layers. And I'm sure there were lots of people going, well, is my gun legal, not not legal? What's going to happen? So um, I do think it could have been managed better. But I also think the gun lobby is is very active and vociferously opposes. All right. You know, when we open this up, it does, we know, you know that it's controversial, but as you say, Canadians are on board. When there is, and we've had an active year, maybe say, I don't know how to put it, and just tragedy in America, we often see our prime minister bring it up, bring it to here to Canada. But we know the Canadian situation is different. Is it fair when when the prime minister sometimes he gets criticized for always jumping on what happens in America and relating it to Canada very quickly. Well, you know, it's uh, for me uh, one of the reasons I I got involved in gun control is because and half my family's in the states is because mm. I do not want to live my life in fear and. You know, as you pointed out, there's many guns as people there. And we are seeing really disturbing, in my view, the fact that, that the number of legally owned handguns has almost tripled in the last in the last couple of decades. And frankly, I have a different view of the circumstances the caller uh, described. There was the mm-hmm. killing of Colton Bushi. Yeah, he was messing around with the with the gun owner's truck, but in Canada, that's not generally uh, a reason to kill someone, and the, the gun owner claimed it was an accident. And there was another case where two Indigenous hunters were minding their own business, driving down the road, and they were pursued and shot and killed. And in that instance, uh, the killers were, in fact, prosecuted. But we got some real problems in this country with racism and hate, and people who are angry and have access to guns can do a lot of damage. How much do you think, I mean, you know, Canadians have always been, as I like to say, so chuffed with ourselves, and we really have been, Wendy, on this issue, in my opinion. We think we're kind of born different. We are different in America. That's where it happens. Not here in Canada. No, we think differently. We act differently. You've pointed out, and we've all seen it. It's not such the case. We saw someone in a van drive up Young Street in Toronto and mow people down. We've seen a, a slaughter on the Danforth. We've seen, look what's happened in the Indigenous community and going on a, a spree We all over Canada. We see it now. Are we, in your opinion, as you've been following this, are we going to become closer and more connected to gun control in this Canada, do you think? Well, you know, again, it's, it's a matter of degree. So in the United States last year, there were about 20,000 gun murders. In Canada, there were under 300. Um, even if you correct for population, that's almost seven times uh, the rate per capita. But as I said, you know, I like to look at other countries like the UK. And if you look at Canada, the US, the UK, and Australia, we have the same rate of homicide in terms of murders that are uh, from beating, stabbings, et cetera, et cetera. The big difference is access to firearms. So I don't think we're morally superior. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. we do have better social programs. You know, there are some things that that help um, create a context in Canada, which is a bit different than in the U.S., but... 
really one of the biggest differences is the availability of firearms. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 